And so if you've been following us uh, for any length of time, you'll know that we've been teaching uh, through the book of Genesis. But we're taking a pause in the book of Genesis in the the month of April to be able to focus in on the life and final works of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're doing this four-week series in Luke uh, where we're looking at the table, the cross, uh, the tomb, and the road. And today we find ourselves focusing on the cross. In Luke, we see the work of Jesus up close and personal. And last week, Ryan uh, showed us the pivotal moment when Jesus instituted uh, communion, uh, or the, the Lord's Supper at a table. And he introduces this, uh, this last table before his death, and he introduces the new covenant. Uh, this wasn't just, uh, just a symbol given to us as the church. It is a reminder of the covenant that Jesus was making with us that was like the old covenant, that it, that it was made in blood. And this new symbol of communion, Ryan showed us that is Jesus is pointing back to that old covenant that was made in blood. This new covenant would be made in blood as well, the blood of Jesus. Just Jesus was reminding us, and Ryan did a good job showing us this past week, uh, that Jesus is pointing back to uh, the foundation story, the narrative of all um, Jews at that time would have been the Exodus, the story of God rescuing his people from slavery Um, and to freedom to life with him, and just like they were told to sacrifice a lamb and take that blood and paint it over the doorpost of their home, Jesus now would say that all of his followers would be marked not with the blood of a lamb, but with his blood. Jesus was showing us at that inconspicuous a meal where they were in, a, in, in an upper room together, remembering the Passover together. If, if you remember this, you might not have noticed this this past week, but there was one thing missing from that meal, which should have been the centerpiece. It was the lamb itself. There's no mention of a lamb there at the meal, and it's because Jesus himself would be that sacrificial lamb whose blood would be poured out in our place. And that's where the story stopped this past week. That sacrificial offering hasn't happened just yet, and so the question still remains, where is that blood going to be poured out? So we on this side of history already know the answer. The blood is going to be poured out on the cross, and that's where we find ourselves today looking at the cross. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in, Genesis, in Luke chapter 23. And I can't help just to say Genesis. We've been in it for a while, right? Let's look at the cross together at uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 26. As you're turning on your Bibles and getting there, um, let's, let's have a short conversation uh, about the cross, though. The cross is the symbol, has come to be kind of the symbol for all of Christian and, uh, Christianity. People wear crosses around their necks. People wear T-shirts. They get tattoos of crosses, right? But if you and I were to have a whiteboarding session right now about let's determine like the symbol of our worldwide religion we probably wouldn't land on the cross as our symbol going forward, right? Because in Jesus' day and time, what would the cross have symbolized? It was a torture device used by the Romans to, to, to torture people to, as they killed them. It was the most gruesome way that they could come up with to show others their power, to show others their um, ability to, to be able to control they would either nail you or hang you to a cross beam on a, on a vertical beam like this cross behind me. And on that cross, they would 
either break your legs so that you couldn't hold yourself up anymore, so you drowned in your own fluids, or you would die on that cross having been pierced with a spear because they needed to get home on time. The centurions, the, the Romans would be like, okay, this guy's taking too long to die. Let's just go ahead and stab him and get, him over, get it over with. This is the symbol of Christianity, this cross, this gruesome torture device. See, you and I would not land on this symbol. We'd probably pick something that symbolizes a, little bit, a bit more strength, right? Just think of a mascot of a team, symbolizing something strong, something uh, that's going to win the victory, win a battle, to show how powerful we are or how strong we are. Not a symbol of weakness and death. But God is not like us. God chose at the fulfillment of all time that the atoning work of Jesus to bring us back to himself would be the execution of Jesus on a cross, a Roman execution device. See, as we spend time in Luke chapter 23 today, I think we're going to see and center on one main point. And that main point is all you need to receive the blessings of Jesus' victory in the atonement is to believe in his death for you on the cross. The cross is everything. And all you need to do is believe. Let's read this text together this morning um, in Luke chapter 23, verses 26, all the way through verse 49 together. The word of the Lord for us this morning reads like this. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene. He was coming in from the country, and they laid him on a cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there they followed him, a, a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to them, the mountains, fall on us, to the hills, cover us. For they who do these things when the wood is green, what will happen to, when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. 
It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breath. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. In the Gospel of Luke, the story of the crucifixion of Jesus is not only a factual account of what actually happened, but it is a highly calculated literary masterpiece. Duke I mean, Luke, the writer of this gospel. See, I got Duke on the brain still. Luke, the writer of this gospel, he's a doctor. That's the the connection, right? You know, Duke and doctors, all that. See, Luke is a doctor who wrote this gospel, and he was highly, highly, uh, he had a great process for going about how to get his gospel account. He talked to eyewitnesses. He engaged with eyewitnesses of what actually happened, and he put together this account in such a way that he was very precise with the details that he included and the ones that he didn't include. Maybe you noticed, as we were reading through this, but there's a wide array array of characters represented in the crucifixion of Jesus, gathered right there around the cross. Let's just name through some of these. First, there's Jesus. Jesus is there. It's his own crucifixion, by the way. Then there's Simon of Cyrene. He's an African man, named because he was probably known pretty well in the early church. That's probably why his name's included. Luke probably talked to someone who knew this guy. Then there's the Roman soldiers, the Jewish rulers, the the two criminals that are unnamed. But then there's this big crowd that's following Jesus just to watch the spectacle and then there's another group that's specified, a group of women. Again and again in, in the Gospel of Luke, this crowd of women is mentioned because these women are set at one point to fund the ministry of Jesus. These women are given honor and dignity by setting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him. These would be women, no doubt, that he has done life with, that have been with him in his ministry, and that's the reason they are mourning him now. They see what's going on right now, and they not only see, maybe, maybe thinly veiled, they see what Jesus has said is going to happen, this crucifixion of the Messiah, but they see their, their friend, their teacher, the one that they had spent time with, suffering at the hands of these Romans. See, these first few verses show Jesus, who is being led away to his death. And along the way, these guards make a man, Simon of Cyrene, carry Jesus' crossbeam. See, although it's not recorded here in the Gospel of Luke for us, we have the other Gospel accounts to thank for knowing that Jesus had been scourged with a whip. He had been flogged. Pieces of his flesh had been ripped away. He would have been broken, bloody, and bruised by this process. And the reason why this man is carrying his crossbeam is not because Jesus couldn't carry it before. It's because now he is too weak to do anything else but walk. There's blood loss going on here. Jesus has been through an excruciating process already, and it's about to get worse. 
See, Jesus is in absolute agony. But see the heart of Christ here. In the midst of his agony, with another man carrying his crossbeam, what does Jesus do but turn to those who are mourning from them, mourning for him, and speak his last sermon to them? Those of the lowest social class whom everyone else would have just discounted as just the mourning women accompanying Jesus. But Jesus turns and he speaks tenderly. He gives them a short sermon about their own future suffering. How fitting is it that Jesus turns to the lowest on the totem pole? He calls them the daughters of Jerusalem and he gives them his final words of wisdom. Even as he's literally being walked to his own cross. There, on the hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull, Jesus is crucified in the middle of two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. One criminal mocks him along with the other rulers and officials, but then the other criminal is different. He rebukes the mocking one, and hanging from his own cross, this man asks for the mere mercy of being remembered by Jesus. And how does Jesus respond here? What is the heart of Christ for this man? Justly suffering his death by his own words? Jesus turns to him and grants this convicted criminal eternal life right there on the spot. Jesus speaks these words of kindness. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. In this final scene, the sky turns dark signifying the undoing of all of creation, that at the suffering of its creator, creation itself is groaning along with its Savior. Creation itself is coming undone as the Savior himself is being put to death on the cross. The temple, the curtain is torn in two. And right here in this moment, the words of the prophet Joel are being fulfilled. Joel 2.31. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Then we have the last words of Jesus spoken in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus lifts up his voice in verse 46 and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathes his last. The one who spoke creation into existence breathes his last. These last words show the trust and dependency that Jesus embodies for us as the truly innocent, suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about, that Eric read for us a few moments ago, Jesus dies for our sin. In verses 47 through 49, we get Luke's depiction and an account of the reactions of the people. And we get three distinct reactions that happen here. First is the reaction of a Roman centurion. This Roman centurion is credited and is the only one credited with praising God here. He sees Jesus dead now on the cross and says, surely this man is innocent. In other gospel accounts, 
He confesses, surely this was the Son of God. He confesses the truth about Jesus. Then there's the crowds. The crowds, just there to see a spectacle, now have the full weight of what's going on, what they just saw, and they go away beating their breasts. This would have been a symbol in that society of they just saw something horrific. They just saw something that they disagreed with. They just saw something that was horrible and wrong. Then we have Jesus' friends, his acquaintances, the women even that were mourning for him, all these people who know him, are just kind of standing there in shock and not doing anything. This is what we're left with. End of the scene. See, without seeing this passage's spiritual significance, you could read this passage and feel like it's a little anticlimactic. And get through Luke's account and just say, you know, Jesus led to his death. There's a promise of future suffering. Jesus gets mocked. He's hung on a cross. Forgives a criminal and he breathes his last. Go get Bojangles. No. Luke, the gospel writer, has another agenda on his mind. He has been crafting, carefully crafting this story to build to this point. And he is marking this point with everything in the way he's crafted this story to show us that this is the, not just the end of a story, but it is the end of an exodus. The end of an exodus. Back in Luke 9.31, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is displayed in his glory among a few of his disciples, we're told this in verse 29 of chapter, chapter 9 of Luke. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That departure, that word there, is the same word in Greek that's translated in the Old Testament for exodus. Exodus, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you didn't grow up in the church at all, you still know what an exodus is. In Exodus, you've heard of a story of an exodus. Maybe it's the original story of the exodus, you know, the whole let my people go thing. There's the kind of like shaking of the fist and you don't really know what's going on with Pharaoh's heart. Is he being hardened or is God hardening it and all the questions surrounding that? But essentially an exodus is this. An exodus is a deliverance. It's a rescue mission. In the Bible, it's a rescue mission accomplished by God. Exodus was the definitive story of the people of God that God would rescue them out of slavery and and oppression and into freedom to be enjoyed with God. And now we have a story here about Jesus dying on a cross, being beaten and mocked and shamed and humiliated. And what Luke calls that is an exodus. What Moses and Elijah and Jesus himself would say that he's doing is he's accomplishing an exodus, a deliverance a rescue mission. And what's more, Luke is telling us by crafting this account like this that this exodus is done. It is complete. So what we should be left asking is, what has this exodus done? What has Jesus' death accomplished? And this is where the entire story of the whole Bible starts shining through this passage. Through his death for us, Jesus accomplishes 
the rescue of all who would believe. The theological phrase for what Jesus did on the cross is called the atonement. The atonement. The atonement is this theological term. It could really easily become Christianese for many of us. Maybe you just heard that term kind of thrown around willy-nilly. You don't really know what it means, but we can avoid that by kind of doing a little bit of homework to kind of understand it. The Old English word that we get for our pronunciation atonement comes from at-oneness. Say that out at-oneness. This coming together, right? What was separated, what was divided is coming together at-oneness. But it was established with the Old Testament idea of atonement. There was an entire sacrificial system where bulls and lambs and goats and wine and, and, and flour was given in order to make atoning sacrifices for a person's sin. So if you sinned or were made unclean somehow, you, you had to give something up. You had to put something in your place. And it was imperative that your sins be atoned for because it could separate you from everyone else. Everyone you knew, everyone you loved, everyone you were around. If atonement didn't happen for you, it would meant separation ultimately from God, but also from your community. It was imperative that you do this. Now, I know this is a silly example on a very small scale, but at least the guys will get this example uh, when I bring it up. Maybe you get this idea of atonement. You, if you're a guy in the room, you know that exact moment where you've just messed up in your relationship with your wife or your spouse, or maybe you're a friend of someone and you just stepped over the line somehow, and you know that you've got to make atonement for whatever you just did, whatever it was. Maybe if you're a dude, you forgot her birthday. Ooh, maybe your, your wife went on a trip, on a business trip, and you didn't water the plants for like a week. Now they're all dead, <laughs> right? You've been in that spot relationally wherever you're coming from with a friend or your spouse or whatever, and you realize at that, po- at that moment, like, I've got to do something to make up for this, right? Now just imagine that on a cosmic scale. I have crossed over the line. I have done something against another that deserves an atoning sacrifice. So unlike me, you know, I, I go down with, with, uh, with, with the, the money that I have to the local place uh, where you go make sacrifices, down to Target, and I buy something that's perfect, spotless, right? So I can offer it in my place for this sin and atone for it, right? But imagine again that on a cosmic scale. Jesus comes as the ultimate fulfillment of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. All those bulls, all that blood, all those goats, all that wine, all, those, all that flour, offering in the place of sin, Jesus comes to atone for sin through his death on the cross. And in order to do so, he must be spotless. He must be perfect and without any sin. So let's take a moment and acknowledge something. See, we live in a culture, in a day and age, where I think we're all, everyone obsessed very much with the fact that there is right and wrong as long as we get to define it, right? Or our favorite pundit gets to define it, or that book that I read gets to define what's that right and wrong thing, right? I think that we readily admit that, but we are unwilling as a culture, as a whole, to admit that our rights and our wrongs have cosmic significance before a holy God. That is an uncomfortable truth. And many of us find it hard 
to kind of really come to grips with the full reality of what that means, that what I do to another, whether it's a sin of commission, I do it, or I know what to do and I don't do it, the sin of omission, is sin against another, but also sin against God. See, the culture that we swim in wants to trivialize God, these God-given convictions that we all feel this need for atonement. But the reality is, is there really is something called sin. It can be done against others and God. And what the Bible tells us is that the wages of sin are death. The consequences for us engaging in that, the cosmic significance of it is death. And there's no way we can earn our way out of it. There's, no, there's not a number of trips to target we could do. There, there's, not a, there's no way we can self-actualize and self-help our way out of this. In fact, we can't do anything about our sin at all. The best we could do is offer the blood of a sacrifice. The best we could do is try to find something and offer it in our place. But the good news that's shown through this passage is that even though we couldn't do anything, God already has. See, all that's left for us and all that we can do really is belief. Let me tell you what the atonement has accomplished for us, and this will come up on the screen. Here's what the atonement accomplishes for us. Jesus, in the atonement, took our sins, bore them on himself, and did away with them in his death. Let me just tell you, every lie, if you're a follower of Jesus, every lie, everything that you've done against another, every wrongdoing, Jesus not only took those sins on himself, he did away with them in his death. Because of his death, for sin, they are no more. They're thrown as far as east is from the West, those sins hold no bearing, no weight over you anymore. Second, God bore the wrath of God for sin. Like all of the wrath of God is satisfied in Christ for those who believe. No more wrath between God and you. That leads us into the third one, that he's, we've reconciled us to God. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so that we could be reconciled to him. Not just, now we're on even playing field. He set us back down to zero. If we make one more sin, now we're back in the, in the red again. Or if we do a bunch of good stuff, we're in the black. No, no more scale. We get Christ's scale. We get the relationship that Christ has with God, perfectly loved, chosen, adopted, brought in, perfectly delighted in. The words of of God at Christ's baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased is spoken over us now. You're a beloved daughter of Christ here in the room. These words are spoken over you because of the atonement. But not only that, God, he, Jesus redeemed us. There's a commentator that said it like this, that uh, now we are brought back to God as, as God's lost property. See, now we belong to God both through creation and by redemption. Not only did God create us, he gave us life, we gave ourselves over to sin. We lost ourselves, but God now owns us. He now loves us. He now has adopted us and brought us into himself. We now belong to him, not only through creation, but by redemption. We have been purchased back to God. See, church, this is really, really, really good news. See, the exodus that Jesus was leading, it ends here. 
It ends at the cross. There was no other way. You know that that word Jesus name means? It comes from the word Yeshua in Hebrew. And I'm not trying to impress you by saying Hebrew. It's like most of us in the room probably know the word Yeshua, right? Not impressive at all. You know what Yeshua means? It's God saves. It means God saves. That God chose before the foundations of the earth that Jesus, God the Son, fully God, fully man, would suffer and die for us in order to save us. This was the only way that God was going to save. Back in Exodus, if you remember that story of the, the Israelites escaping from the Egyptians, they're led out into the wilderness and God leads them on a path that actually leads them into a place where they would be hemmed in. They would be cornered. They would have a sea on one side, and then they would have the Egyptian army on the other. There was no other way. This is what Moses says to the people when they're hemmed in on both sides with a wall of death of water on one side and a wall of death by Egyptian swords on the other. Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. That word, you know what that word is in Hebrew? Yeshua. See the God saves. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you this day. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Church, at the cross, the Lord has fought for you. You need only be silent. Salvation has come through this one God-man, Jesus Christ, who suffered in your place for your sin. That word salvation in 13 shows us the hope that we can have in Jesus. It's the very name of Christ, and it means that all we need to do to receive the full blessing of Christ's victory and the atonement is to believe in Jesus' death for us on the cross. It was the only way. And who's the only one in the story that's actually credited with this? Not just confessing, not just feeling like some others did in the crowd, not just knowing what they saw was wrong. Who in the crowd experiences God's grace and mercy? Who's the example that we're given to follow? The criminal. Criminal. What can we learn from this man? Apparently he had been convicted of a crime worthy of death. This man was probably an outcast. We're not told of anyone around the cross gathered around to see this guy die. He was alone. The only company he had was the other criminal on the other side who's he's rebuking. There's much that we can learn from this criminal. Let's zoom in on this man and see what we can learn from his last words. First, through his words, we could see that he fears God. This criminal fears God. He rebukes the other man for his blasphemy on a cross. Remember what I said earlier, like the point of the cross is to kill you. And one of the ways is to do that is to your lungs are literally filling with fluid because of the process that you've just been, when, been through and the kind of the way the execution is happening. He had to force himself to say these words to rebuke the other criminal on the cross. He straight up asked him, don't you fear God? The second, this man acknowledges his own sin. He readily admits that he is suffering a just punishment due his actions, that the actions of the other criminal is, is what he deserves as well. What they've done is wrong. He isn't trying to hide his sin. 
he also affirms the truth about Jesus. He sees Jesus as innocent, but he also sees Jesus not only as innocent, but as the true king. Did you notice that? What he said? Remember me when you enter your kingdom. He sees Jesus as a king. You remember the other rulers and Romans mocking Jesus at the foot of the cross? What are they yelling at him? He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers even cry out, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Have some sour wine. All along, these taunts against Jesus stand as some of the strongest statements about who he really is. He really is the Messiah. He really is God's chosen one. He really is the king of the Jews. And the most ironic of all is they tell him to save himself. What's really happening here in the atonement is by not saving himself, going through death, he is saving them. Let the full weight of that fall on you, church. This is why Jesus says in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because the criminal also, in light of all this, he asks Jesus for mercy. I think it's because of witnessing Jesus' mercy shown to these men, even on the cross, that confirms it in his mind. This man really is the Christ. This man really is the one who's come to sacrifice himself in my place for his sin. The thief on the cross who is dying for his own realized that he, Jesus is suffering for yet his sin as well. This thief, in his simple faith, in asking Jesus for the simplest of mercies, is granted eternal life from Jesus on the cross. This is consistent with the character of God throughout all time, shown page after page on the, every page of the Bible. As we've walked through Genesis, have we not seen the quick nature of God to meet any time we turn to him in faith with quick mercy? Recently, I've been reminded again that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Have you ever seen anyone be guilted or shamed into obedience? Guilted and shamed into repenting over something. Now, yes, even the criminal calls out this other sinner in and rebukes him, and that's called for sometimes. But what has met this man in confessing his sin before Jesus is just a flood of God's mercy, a flood of undeserved grace. See, imagine with me, if you will, that you're standing in front of the Hoover Dam. And if you know what the Hoover Dam is, it is absolutely breathtaking in its size and its scope. It's huge. There's a wall, huge wall, and then there's water on the other side. Now imagine you're in front of that dam, and you've got your finger in a crack on it. And you're the only thing standing between that thing and everything kind of rushing on the other side. Now on the other side, it's not just a wall of water. It is God himself. A lot of us imagine that if that wall separating us between us and God, if we were to take our finger out of that crack, we're going to get an ocean of I told you so's. We are going to get a flood of you should have done betters. We feel like we're going to get condemnation, guilt, and shame. But this criminal on the cross, literally dying, shows us, as soon as we remove the slightest amount of tension on that, 
we are met with a flood of God's mercy and his grace. See, God, in his kindness, shows his character on the cross and atoning for our sin. Jesus doesn't tell the criminal on the cross that he's glad to see that he sees the error of his ways or here's 10 things you got to do. You better get them done before you die here on the cross or quick, say this exactly this way. No, he says, truly, you can count on this. Take it to the bank. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Church, there is a divine mystery happening on the cross, even of the criminal. In that, even though in the midst of his suffering, he was experiencing, in some ways, the paradise of being under the lordship of King Jesus. Even in the midst of his suffering, excruciating suffering, this thief would die on the cross. But the words of Jesus would remain true today. You will be with me in paradise. That word paradise is the same Greek Old Testament word that's used all the way back in Genesis 2.9 to describe the Garden of Eden. The place where God and man dwelt together in perfect unity and harmony. Jesus isn't just granting this man forgiveness of his sins. He's granting him entrance into his kingdom. Granting him entrance into the garden, to the place where he and God will dwell forever. Remember the veil of the temple that was torn? There's no separation now between God and man. See, Jesus is making all things new, even from the cross. See, today, Jesus is welcoming this criminal home as king. Now think about the people who saw that exchange happen. See, the guards and and, and the rulers, Simon and, and the crowds, the women, They stand there at the foot of the cross and they just witnessed a man go from death to life while clinging to his own life. This crowd of people see the sky go dark and Jesus breathes his last. Imagine how they felt in that moment. I'm not sure about you this morning, about who you may feel and commiserate with the most. Maybe it's the bystanders Maybe it's those who mock Jesus or like the repentant criminal. Maybe you feel like the bystanders. This morning, no. God is welcoming you and inviting you to experience his mercy on display for you and to remind you of the unconditional acceptance that's on the table. Maybe you've been coming. Maybe you've been engaging with church here for a while and you have yet to submit and follow Jesus, to really experience that mercy and grace when you do relent. You take that finger out of the wall because you're scared what's going to happen on the other side. You've been hurt before. You've been wrong before. It's just easier to stay on the sidelines. It's easier to be a bystander. When you see the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, you are being invited into experience what God has for you. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Someone like dragged you here. You're like kind of mad that you're here in the first place. They like tricked you into getting here because they promised you food or something or like you're gonna watch a game after this. Maybe that's you. You need to know that even through the insults of those who are mocking Jesus, it's through that Jesus' true identity is fully on display and fully revealed as the Messiah. 
you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, God is not trying to beat you up until you get in line and submit and follow him. He's showing you his love and care for you when you deserved at least by dying for you on a cross. And maybe you're here and you feel like the repentant criminal. If you do, you're in really good company. <laughs> I'm definitely right there with you. I see my own sin. And I see my own unworthiness to be brought into the family of God. And I see that even in the midst of my sin and my shame, Lord Jesus has met me there and granted me grace and forgiveness. And that's all of us. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, this is what we do. We know God. We know his character. We confess our weaknesses and we confess Jesus as our hope and we cling to our confidence in his mercy as our great high priest. See, the cross, again, is our defining symbol of hope in atoning for our sins in our place. And this is how Luke 23 is going to end. Is at the foot of this cross. Everyone walking away with rumors of what might happen next. And if you're here this morning, I want to invite you to join us next week as we see that all of this hinges on the hope of what happens next. What's going to happen once Jesus is buried in a tomb. So next weekend, church, we're going to see the hope of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Let me pray that we would. Lord Jesus, I pray you right now that we would be reminded of the hope of the gospel um, with the example of the repentant criminal who stands for us as an example to walk in. God, I pray that as we remember the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins and what you did for us, God, that we would respond um, as we rightly should, seeing your grace and mercy on display and giving ourselves over to it as the thing that we most truly need, we most truly desire, that we most truly want. God, I pray that we would, in this time of response, um, as we go to the table, and as we sing, as we give, as we do all those things, Lord Jesus, that you would be made much of. I pray that in your name. Amen.